Welcome to the M Files. You are listening to Valerie and Ella Mayers, Patty Wood Finkel, John Woodward, and Michael Williams. On this season of the M Files, we are boldly going into the world of wonder cabinets and museum delights. Today, our guest is Levi Salner, the inventory curator at the Canterbury Shaker Village in New Hampshire. Levi is known to us from his time in Wyoming and he is completing his bachelor's degree in history at Plymouth State University. Welcome, Levi. Well, thank you for having me. Levi, I'm going to ask you the same question we ask all of our guests to kick off our interviews. What is the strangest thing that has ever happened to you at a museum? This could be a museum you worked at or a museum you were a visitor at or any other thing in between, such as Hmm, let's say a museum you were an intern at because you are an intern extraordinaire. Um, well, I would I would say just for the uh for the sake of the company here, um well, you and I were both at the um Tate. I remember one particularly odd customer at the gift shop when I was working there. And um the Tate Museum is home to D, the uh, Colombian mammoth, the largest Colombian mammoth ever. Um ever uh ever ever excavated and it's the flagship of the tate you can't miss it and i was sitting there at the uh, gift shop and this middle-aged guy walks in and he looks at it for a few minutes and then he turns to look at me and just very piercing gaze you know i know what that really is okay well well please what is it that's a yeti and I, uh, <laughs> I wasn't really sure what to. I wasn't really sure what to do. I thought he was kidding. So I was like, "Ah, oh, good one!" And oh, that's amazing. And he just he, his gaze doesn't break. He just continues staring at me. And I don't really know what to do. So I, I'm like, "Well, can I help you find anything?" And eventually, his wife kind of uh, uh distracts him and brings him away. But he was convinced that it was a yeti. Like it wasn't that a joke. That is brilliant. I <laughs> I had not heard that story. <laughs> oh, that is by far the best question I've ever heard about D the Mammoth. <laughs> oh my goodness, I love that. I had never heard that story either. That is fabulous. Levi, thank you so much for being here in Wyoming with us. Um, would you talk more? for our listeners about your trajectory from starting out going through museum studies program to going to the larger university and how you ended up at your institution. Um, sure. So as all of you, I'm sure are aware, uh, I started out in Casper with you guys. I've worked pretty closely with all of you at some point or another. And um, so I went out to Wyoming from New Hampshire, which is uh, essentially like going to Mars. It's a totally different world. And I just kind of knew that I wanted to be in the museum <laughs> field is. somewhere. I knew I wanted to be in the history field and particularly in museums. And Casper was essentially the only two-year program that I know of in museum and gallery studies. And they had a pretty strong concentration of museums. I mean, a pretty small area. And it was an interconnected group as well. So through that, um, with Valerie as my advisor... She pointed me in the direction of a number of different internships with both um, Patty and John, as well as others in, in Casper. 
and I kind of developed a pretty good sense of what the field was and more or less a general idea of how to, how to, how to perform in those, in those uh, different jobs. So after finishing that degree, I headed back to New Hampshire and New Hampshire, as old of a state as it is, um, there aren't that many museums and the, those that are there, they're relatively large and a little bit hard to break into, but I was kind of doing my thing. I was started at the Plymouth, at Plymouth State University um, as a junior in the history program. And then the, the summer between my junior and senior year, I was working at a, I was working at a grocery store. I was really doing nothing in the museum world. And my advisor over there suggested, um, suggested a, uh, an internship, uh, a curatorial internship at the Canterbury Shaker village because the head curator there was a good friend of hers. So um, I, I applied and I had an interview and they took me in and I started working on this inventory project for the whole, the whole museum. So the Canterbury Shaker village, it was an active Shaker site for 200 years from 1792 to 1992. And there was no gap between it being an active Shaker site and a museum in 1969. Um, Bud Thompson, who's a country singer turned museum professional, um, entered an agreement with the Shakers to preserve that site as a museum after after the, uh, the the last of the Shaker sisters died. So that being said, nothing left. Everything's still there, and part of the Shaker faith is not like misusing or wasting things. So a lot of the stuff never left. And as far as we know, our, our past perfect currently says that we have around 40,000 objects, but um, my forays into the, the inventory part of this suggests that it's a lot more. It's somewhere in the hundreds of thousands. And so I was working on that. I was developing kind of the program that, uh, that we were, we were going to be using to do this inventory with another intern. And sort of, uh, sort of being the, the guinea pig for it. And at the, at the same time, the, uh, the, the direct, not the director, the, uh, the head curator there, uh, Dr. Shirley Vita, um, she had applied for a, um, Institute of Museum and Library Sciences grant for hiring two curators for three years to inventory the entire property. And she said that, you know, if she'd got the grant, gotten the grant, she wanted to take me on as, as one of those, uh, inventory curators. So obviously that's an amazingly good opportunity for somebody who hasn't even completed their bachelor's degree. And I accepted. So right now I'm part-time there, uh, because I am still a full-time student, but I hope to be switching to full-time in uh, June. It's an amazing story. I mean, it's really incredible just sticking it with the field, sticking with what you love. And it's like dreams happen. Yeah, I, uh, I, there's a fair bit of luck as well. <laughs> um, if if she hadn't applied for the IMLS grant while I was there, I really doubt that I would be in the field right now. But here I am, and I'm I feel quite lucky to be here. That's a great story, though. It's I think a lot of people assume with museums that we are all really aware of what we have and that taking that step back to do an inventory, which is the process I'm in right now at my current institution, um, is really important so you can really understand your collections and what you have. So I think that's a great way for you to get your foot in the door in the New Hampshire museum industry because 
once you've done this internship, this internship, this job for three years, um, you'll have a really good understanding, I think, of the museum community in that state and make some really good contacts and everything. So congratulations on your job. Well, thank you. I, uh, I'm... Well, the other thing that you mentioned, Levi, that is, you know, apart from being lucky is the networking aspect. You know, not only did you, you receive, you got the chance for this opportunity because, you know, existing networking within the, the community and the connections between your, his, your uh, history department and the, and the museum. So I think that's another thing that needs to be highlighted is just like anywhere else, networking is the key to the museum field. It is. And um, I also, and experience as well, because through uh, internships out in Wyoming with you guys, um, I was able to, you know, have a general sense of what was going on and uh, how to how to do the, the museum work. And because of that, that kind of gave me a leg up against the other potential um, people for that job. So Levi, would you tell us more about the collection at the Shaker Village? What types of objects are you cataloging currently? And do you have a favorite that you've encountered thus far? So um, it's so the Canterbury Shaker Village is a national historic site. Um, it was a it was the largest and most successful um, village in the Shaker faith, and it operated from 1792 to 1992, and at its peak had a capacity of a little over 300 people in sometime in the 1840s. And um, but as from that general decline less and less of the buildings and the areas were being actively used. So more and more stuff was put into storage in those. Just oodles of furniture, um, agricultural tools, manufacturing tools. It's, these, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bizarre place that both combines agriculture and industry in this strange, like, communist but yet very capitalist environment. Um, so I'm not really sure how to, how quite to describe it. It's a religious site, but at the same time, a monument to ingenuity and hard work. And so the things that I'm finding, um, the things that I've gone through so far is I try to make chronologies of a lot of the things that we're, uh, that I, that I find. So my, one of my first projects in this, uh, in this, this inventory project was stoves, wood stoves, uh, kerosene stoves, natural gas stoves, essentially just a chronology of heating equipment that the, the, that the shakers used in that 200 year time period. There is a type of stove known as a quote unquote shaker stove. And, um, it's, it's, you know, usually four legs with a flat base and sort of the shape of an upside down bread pan. Um, like loaf pan on top of it with a door and a stovepipe. That was always kind of assumed to be invented by the Shakers in New England. Through more, through more research and uh, a little bit of a closer look at it, that seems to be much more of a myth than any sort of fact. Um, so, in the turn of the the eighteenth uh, nineteenth century. Uh, Wood stoves started to really take over, you know, instead of uh, hearths, because as um, the, the area was being deforested, there was less and less um, access to firewood. So more efficient use of it was kind of uh, 
kind of a, a thing that people were looking into. So these early upside down loaf pan style stoves, which people refer to as shaker stoves, started to become pretty popular. They were replacing the German style 12 to 16 plate, these, these humongous, hideous cast iron monstrosities, and were being um, replaced by these simpler, cheaper stoves. And um, it's it's interesting to see the the change from those. Well, we, none of them are, are, are truly shaker made because, as far as I know, there were no foundries in any of the shaker villages around here. But uh, they were produced by local foundries and shipped a very short distance to the shaker uh, shaker village. I can I can kind of track the manufacturers of the different stoves through little um, through the shape of handles and you know little embellishments and things like that, but unfortunately you really can't specifically tell where those are where they came from uh, because that simply wasn't recorded it was a small little cottage industry usually done by maybe two or three people in the uh working in the foundry and and you can't really tell where that's coming from so i can get a chronology but nothing beyond that until i you get to the later stoves and but i won't bore you with those details <laughs> um so it's 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 interesting because nothing ever left the uh, the site. You can see how things changed over time. There are examples from every decade, from 1790 to 1965, as far as I know, with the later ones. So <laughs> that's just one of many things that I've been uh, I've been trying to track down and look, gain a little bit more information on. So, Levi, as an emerging museum professional, you know, someone who, you know, has, uh, you know, is coming up on their senior year of their undergraduate and, you know, starting to take their first strides into the professional world, what's a piece of advice that you'd like to give, say, a, a high school student or someone just coming into college who is considering working in the museum field? Don't be afraid to take risks and accept everything that you can you're going to work hard and you know the commute might be really long or it might not be the actual museum might not interest you particularly but if you want to be in the field just say yes and take the risks and learn along the way and you'll you know become you'll become a more rounded professional and it'll it'll work it'll work out for you in the long run that's great advice. That's what took me to Nebraska for my for, with my first job. So that's uh, that's really good advice. So that is good advice, and that's how I ended up in Wyoming. So <laughs> that's the way it goes. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the area that you're at in New Hampshire, and a little bit about the location of the museum? So I'm not familiar with New Hampshire, even though I lived there for a year. Um, <laughs> A long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, remind us where exactly your museum is at. So um, New Hampshire is a, uh, it's a, obviously a state in New England. And the general area that my museum is in, uh, it's in a, it's in a relatively, relatively rural, um, formerly agricultural region, which has now been, you know, repopulated with trees and, obviously with these beautiful hardwoods that turn fiery red in the, in the fall and bring in huge amounts of tourists. And uh, so 
it's a it's it's sort of the area and especially the Canterbury Shaker Village has this cert- certainly um quaint aspect that people just love. Um they don't really <laughs> they don't really seem to to understand that it probably was a, uh, the actual village was probably incredibly loud when it was in operation with all of the machinery going and the generators and the steam engines all like howling at the same time um that's kind of a lost and forgotten aspect what's left is this beautifully maintained property with 26 original buildings and these just gorgeous walking trails and right now beautiful foliage and the amount of travelers coming up to see that is just it's just uh it's it's you can't miss it so are you a seasonal museum or are you open year-round so our tours um they go we are our daily tours they run from may to um november to like november 1st but uh after that there are weekend tours by um by appointment all the way into mm, the end of december you know, as the winter comes in and the snow really starts to pile up, it becomes harder and harder to do that. And then we do kind of go into hibernation, and that's when we get our uh, get most of the curatorial stuff done, and uh, the more the more internal, even more internal operations. So, are there any special events that are happening during that very active season that you'd like to share with the listeners? Um, actually, if you guys, if anybody here is uh is uh is is hearing this by the time this goes out um this next coming weekend we have our ghost tours which we do um yearly so if you missed it this year uh come back come on over next year and we will take people on night tours through the buildings by lamplight uh and while we tell tell about some of the uh the the encounters by both the shakers and the people working in the museum Well, that's fantastic. So, you know, a question from from Michael, uh, going back to your uh, your discussion about the different shaker stoves and the collections that you have there. You know, what object or objects have you come across where the owner has modified or repurposed those items for use in another task? Actually, um, that's the, I can. There's a, there's one in particular that I find uh, pretty cool and. It's a bit of a mystery object for us. Um, so in the uh, probably 1850s through 18, early 1890s, there was a, a cooperage and bucket manufactory on the property uh, for buckets for you know export to the surrounding area and particularly sap buckets. And um, it, it's not <laughs> the thing with uh, with cooperage is it's not very easy. And to do it properly, you need you can't really make any mistakes because you can't have a bucket that leaks. It's just useless. Um, so something I have found that everybody has dis- differing opinions about what it is, but we have a sap bucket. What began life as a sap bucket with three different hangers on it and some other kind of strange uh, features. So the normal sap buckets, they're about two and a half gallons and relatively tall. And they have one of three different kinds of hangers. We have these little, um, well, one of more or less two different kinds. There's these little coffin-shaped ones, and it's held in by two rivets, and it has a hole through the top where you can hang your bucket from your tree. And then later, as uh, as they started making them cheaper, and um, they began using these little pieces of strap that were cut into 
into shape, held in with two rivets with a hole through the top. This bucket is considerably shorter than the rest. It's been cut. At, I, I'm personally, I think, more than once. It's been cut. Like the, uh, the, the where the rivets were on the previous rings were cut off, and there are three different hangers on it. There are the, there are the two kinds that I just described, as well as a modified bucket bail plate, and they're all on the same side. And it doesn't make sense to have a bucket with three different hangers in the same spot. You, there's no purpose for that. I believe that this was a mistake bucket that somebody was using as a teaching tool to teach people how to mount the, uh, the rivets. So I, uh, I, I, I think that's... People disagree. Everybody has a different idea about it. But to me, that's what makes the most sense. Because nobody is born being a master cooper something has to you have to be taught so that bucket with the three different bail plates that's what i that's what i think so levi when you're studying um and finishing up your degree at the university are there any classes that you're taking that have really facilitated more content knowledge in this area or are there any special projects that you're doing in relationship to your degree there so um one of my favorite classes right now it ties directly into this uh, into the, the the sort of shaker studies that i've been doing on the side that is antebellum america with the actually the advisor who got me this position at Canterbury and what's awesome about it is I can see firsthand all of the influence of the different kind of countercultures that were popular in you know the 1815 to 1860 time all those second great awakening um movements and like gramism like uh like they were uh, the shakers were gramite for a while um you could see uh, they were the, the kind of well, what else can i see uh sorry one second uh you see um so the, actually the rise of thompsonian herbal medicine uh so which so thompson lived in northern new, new, uh, new hampshire and created this book about uh using new england plants as you know medicine so that book took off in popularity and uh so the shakers seeing the, the 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 potential profit they started making recipes out of his book creating their own out of these new england herbal plants and making oodles of money off of that so you can track all of these different pre-civil war you know health movements and religious movements and all this stuff through this little micro america it's it's a it's a it, that class ties into the the uh, canterbury shaker village beautifully That's really neat. It seems as though all your experiences have really coalesced to bring you to this point um, with this amazing institution. I, I would love to be able to visit sometime soon, especially in the fall when I'm sure right now the foliage is just entering its peak. We would love to have you. Um, that, <laughs> yeah, definitely come anytime late September through mid uh, mid October it's just the, it looks like the world's on fire it's this it just this beautiful color and uh, good luck getting on the tours because they're pretty popular because this is the big tourist season for New England oh I bet I bet 
So, Levi, now that you're, you know, got your foot in the door, um, you know, what what do you see as your next step? Uh, you know, obviously graduation is around the corner, but and you have this project that will see you through for the next couple of years. But have you started to think about what comes next? After the three years at the uh, at the Canterbury Village, I am pretty sure that I can't put off graduate school. I haven't really considered where to go yet, um, but that's that seems like the logical next step because I got really lucky with the amount of it, the the level of education that I'm at getting this this position. But to do that again and get other positions like this, I feel like graduate school is probably necessary. Well, it's good that you have some time to think about it and you know to make that decision. Uh, and you you would be able to walk into uh, whatever program you're looking at, whether that's museum studies or public history or, or gallery administration, uh, with that that kind of experience. So I know if Patty was here, she would probably say look to Texas, but you know some of us others have gone other places. So you know keep your options open. I've heard Patty's uh, heard Patty's spiel on uh, on Texas Tech many times. So <laughs> that's still that's still a possibility. Um, I'm not sure that's a, that's a done deal, but who knows? You know, just to follow up, uh, now that you've had experience in different roles within museums is there a particular role that you find yourself drawn to that you'd like to pursue further or are you still keeping your options open in in terms of uh different roles i'm pretty willing to do anything especially along the lines of uh the curatorial end or the collections end i do love working with the objects and i i just both the care and like the care of the objects is vitally important, but so is how to use them. And uh, because what like what's the point of having a collection if you can't share it? It's 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 it might as well not be there. It's uh so I I really find that both ends of that are equally valuable and equally enticing. Fortunately, with this current position, I can do quite a bit of both. So Levi, thanks for uh, for joining us today and uh, sharing your insights uh, as a, an emerging museum professional. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad you asked me to be here. I, this is, I've been looking forward to this for a while as a, as a long-time listener, so uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm, I'm happy to have been here. All right. Well, before we close, just a bit of housekeeping. New episodes this season will be dropping every couple of weeks. Please check our Facebook page for announcements on upcoming guests, along with news from the museum world. For any of our listeners who have questions, you can contact us through our Facebook page or by email at themfilespodcast at gmail.com. We promise we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Also, when you have a moment, please rate and review the M-Files on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us. Those reviews help other people find our show. In the meantime, stay curious, visit a museum, and thank you for listening. And we'll see you here next time on The M-Files.